Those are the words of what's called the Apostles' Creed. It's a very ancient summary or syllabus of the faith that has roots all the way back into the second century in Rome. Today you're joining us in what we're calling our Echo Sermon Series. I've been preaching this for the last several weeks at 9.30. If you're having trouble sleeping, you can go online and watch some of the earlier iterations of the series. Today we're looking at this great phrase, on the third day he rose again from the dead. See, one of the things I believe is that we need to be trained in some of the basic doctrines of the faith. In fact, in the early church, it took several years before you could even be baptized as a Christian. You're going through a long period of formation and training, which makes sense if you think about it. You just don't show up to play quarterback in the Super Bowl. You've been training and practicing your whole life. You just don't start operating on somebody's heart in the operating room one day. You've been training for that moment for years and years and years. You don't just go into battle without going through basic training. So it stands to reason it doesn't make sense that you can have all that you have to live the Christian life the moment you become a Christian. In fact, I think there needs to be time to be trained and shaped and formed in the faith. And that's what we're doing in this sermon series. In the ancient church, this, this um, process was called catechesis. Catechesis. It's from where we get the word like catechism. And on the way in this morning, you might have gotten one of these little uh, cardboard brown booklets. It's like a 21st century updated version of an ancient catechism. You'd love to take one on your way out. We have more of them, something to look through and work through with your family. What's interesting to me is that this Greek word echo and the Greek word catechesis are related. In other words, our role in the church is just to hear and then to repeat the deep messages of the faith that the martyrs and the saints have passed down to us. In fact, to the extent that we are a faithful echo of the ancient message of the church, to that extent will God be able to use us in the world, I believe. But of all the claims the creed makes, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, believing in the Holy Spirit, of all the claims, the central one, and perhaps the most troubling, is the central fact of the faith. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And this is the question I have for you. Can you be a thinking person and believe in the resurrection? Come on, this is the 21st century. Can you be a thinking person and really believe in the resurrection? After all, don't we know that the Gospels, which are written several decades after the death of Jesus, aren't they just unreliable and particularly contradictory when it comes to the story of what happened that first Easter morning? Isn't it true that the resurrection of Jesus is some sort of metaphorical way to to talk about some feeling the church had uh, emotionally with Jesus after he had died, and so they talked about a resurrection? It was almost as if he was there with us. Isn't that true, that's what the resurrection is? Or even most basically, isn't it true that we know that dead people stay dead? Don't we know that? If there's one thing we know in 2012, isn't it that dead people stay dead? Perhaps you've been wondering some of those questions before. Perhaps you have friends in your life that ask you those questions, and perhaps you've never had any of those sorts of questions. If so, I think you're blessed, and God has used you. Uh, and gifted you with a particular faith. One of the things I believe, if we can't be honest and ask the tough questions in church, I don't know where we can. <clears throat> I've shared this story with some of you before, but when I was in college, I was part of a campus a Christian group, and we had a guy come to our uh, campus who was an expert on what's called apologetics. That's a fancy word for just being able to uh, defend or explain the faith to non-believers. And we were in a group of him, and we were asking him questions, and I was embarrassed to ask my question. This is my question in my humble and accurate opinion. It was a very good question. It's this. 
why would we be supposed to pray if God already knows what's going to happen? Pretty good question, right? Why should we pray for something if God already knows what's going to happen? But instead of asking that question and being given some tools to use in my prayer life, I was embarrassed to ask it because I thought everybody would say, you don't know that. You know, get out of here. God forbid that this church is like that. I hope this is a place in which we can ask what's really on our hearts. I hope you never have to pretend here to know more about the Bible than you do. There's no ignorant question when it comes to that. If there's a question you're wrestling with, even if you think no one else cares, I hope this is a place where you can ask it. And so today, let's go back to this question. Can a thinking person really believe in the resurrection? Don't we know that you, you can't? Don't we know that in the 21st century you can't really be a thinking person and believe in the resurrection? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. The passage I want to read today is from Luke's gospel. It's Luke chapter 24. It's Luke's account of what happened that first Easter morning. Verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you. While he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It says the eleven because at that point Judas, of course, is no longer part of the twelve main disciples. They told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But listen to this. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Skipping ahead to another experience somebody has on the road to Emmaus, we hear this in verse 36. And while they were still talking about this, that is some experiences some people had, and the women's report, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have everything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. May God add his richest blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. So can a thinking person believe in the resurrection? Some people say no because the gospels are unreliable. I want to look at that first, just for a few minutes. It is true that most scholars think that the Gospels as we have them, and we have four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written down several decades after the death of Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament, most people believe some of the earliest letters are the letters of Paul, First Thessalonians, letters like that. 
But I don't think it's true that because they were written down later, they're uh, legendary and unreliable. In fact, I think the more you look at it, the more convinced you are that something extraordinary happened that first Easter Sunday morning. For example, now, the different Gospels say different things about exactly when and who first went to the tomb. Some people say, some of the, uh, John's Gospel says they went when it was still dark. Other, Mark's Gospel says while, while it was dawn. So there's some discrepancy about the time, but in either case, it was very early in the morning. And although in John's Gospel it's Mary Magdalene who's there first, and in Mark it's three women, in Luke's Gospel it's a bunch of women all together. All the Gospels agree that the first people to get to the empty tomb that morning were women, which is a problematic detail. Because, no offense to the women who are currently here, in the first century, women were not seen as equal members of society and were certainly not considered reliable eyewitnesses in court. So if you were trying to make up a legend about something that had happened to justify your religious beliefs, you would never pick women to be the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. You'd say, the first people to see it were Pilate or a Roman centurion or something like that. You wouldn't say it was women because the testimony of women was not reliable in any case. And yet all the Gospels agree that the first people to go to the empty tomb that morning were women. What do we do with that? There's two explanations. Either one, the people who wrote the Gospels were idiots and were too stupid to pull off a good ruse and hoax. Or perhaps the reason they all say that the women were the first ones there is because they actually were. Now, if you and I are at an event and something extraordinary happens... We might have some discrepancies in our eyewitness testimony. I might say, no, 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 no. I was standing there and then it happened. Or you'd say, no, I think this happened and then that, that happened. But if something extraordinary took place in our midst, we'd all agree, this happened. We, were, we're, we can agree on the big thing. It's some of the smaller details that get confusing when we're trying to remember exactly what happened in the heat of the moment. I think the same thing happens here in the Gospels. And I think it's in the church's wisdom in concern for the truth that we have four slightly different gospel accounts. Have you ever thought about it? Couldn't the church have just said, get rid of all these different accounts, let's try to harmonize them and make one. But the church very early on said, we're not going to do that. We're going to take these things that have come down to us and we're going to treasure them and keep them as part of our holy scriptures. Again, that to me has two Solutions. The one is, well, again, the church doesn't know what they're doing and doesn't know how to pull off a good hoax. The other is, because Peter saw it like this, and John saw it like this, and the people Matthew talked to saw it like this, and then those that Luke interviewed saw it like this. And they're all slightly different. But they all agree on the essentials, as we'll see. So the, the idea that the Gospels are unreliable and therefore the resurrection can't possibly be true and a thinking person can't believe it, I don't think that ultimately holds water if you really investigate it. I find, and perhaps I'm just as guilty of it as anybody else, we talk a lot about the Bible and few of us really read it. And you perhaps have friends or perhaps this is you this morning and you have theories about the scriptures that you've heard 
you bought a book at Barnes Noble, you heard someone lecture on TV, you saw a YouTube video. But often there are people in our culture, and some of them are scholars, they actually want to undermine the church's claims. I'd ask you to examine their claims just as much as you're examining the claims of the scriptures and see ultimately which holds water. So first, the idea that the scriptures are just unreliable and they can't be trusted, I don't think that holds up. They're all agreed, something happened, the tomb was empty, the women first saw it. But what about this idea that whatever it was that happened, it was some sort of kind of like emotional thing. It was either hallucination or um, they had some sense that Jesus was going on continuing, although they didn't really meet the risen Lord. The problem with that claim is, again, that's not what the church is saying. That's not what the scriptures say. Did you get this really strange detail at the end of Luke's gospel when Jesus comes and stands among them and says, peace be with you? It's I, look at my hands and my feet. And they still don't believe. And he says, do you have any fish? Can I have something to eat? Have you ever wondered why that detail is in there? It's in there because it was very important to the gospel writers that they got across to, the ide- to their audience that this wasn't some sort of hallucination or spiritual event or, or even some kind of ghost. Although it makes no sense what the church is trying to tell us is truly the risen Christ was there in an embodied form, the way that I'm here with you today. And that's why he asked to eat something. Now, the risen Christ is obviously different. Something about the resurrection body is different than his body that's come before. No one quite recognizes him at first. And all the Gospels, there's always a point of uh, a moment of recognition. They don't see him at first. He's able to appear and disappear at will. In John's Gospel, they're upstairs in the upper room with a locked door. And Jesus appears among them and, of course, says, peace. Here in Luke's Gospel, something similar happens. But the Gospel writers are very clear and the church was insistent. I know this sounds crazy, they're telling us, but we saw him and touched him and felt him. He even ate a piece of fish in our midst. And after all, he showed Thomas the scars in his hands. So the idea, which sounds nice, which is, well, the resurrection is like a metaphor for talking about something the church experienced. I don't think that holds up with what the church itself is saying. In Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the people to whom Jesus appeared. And he doesn't say, you know, he appeared in some kind of metaphorical, spiritual way. He says, no, he appeared to them, and he named some folks. So you may not agree that that's possible, but you can't say that's what happened according to the church because the church says the opposite. Let's be honest. Let's ask our tough questions, but let's be open-minded to follow the questions all the way through. So, maybe it's not the case that the Gospels are unreliable. Maybe the fact that there are these slight discrepancies between the resurrection accounts, rather than being an argument against the reliability of the Scripture, could actually be an argument in favor of the reliability of the Scripture. After all, the more true something is, the less you need to make all the neat edges come up. The more innocent you are, so to speak, the less you are concerned about making sure that all the evidence totally shows your innocence because you know the truth of the claim you're making. But let's come back to this ultimate one, which is this. Okay, I hear what you're saying, but there's one thing I know, and it is that dead people stay dead. What do we do with that? 
Well, first of all, can I just say that what the scriptures are trying to tell us is that is exactly the point. That's why the resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. See, we are such chronological snobs in the modern world. We have cell phones and jumbo jets and chemotherapy. And somehow we think it's in the modern era that people came to the realization that dead people stay dead. You don't think people in the ancient world knew that when people died, they were dead? Now, maybe in the ancient world they had a larger belief of, spiritual thi- of spirits and ghosts and stuff like that than we do. But they knew that when somebody died, he or she stayed dead. That's kind of the point. And, of course, that's not a particular Jewish insight or Christian insight. That's like a human insight. We have more technology now than we used to. We know a little bit more about the natural world, but come on. They knew that dead people stayed dead. In fact, did you hear what the disciples say to the women when they first come back with the message? This is in uh, verse 9. When they, that is the women, came back from the empty tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. They didn't believe because it seemed like nonsense. Why did it seem like nonsense to the male disciples, to Peter and to the rest, that the tomb was empty and that Christ was raised from the dead? Because they themselves knew that dead people stay dead. That's exactly the point. One of the things that all the Gospels agree on is that nobody expected Christ to be raised from the dead. In fact, what is the last place you see the disciples going before Easter Sunday morning? They scurry away in fear. The Messiah, the one they had put their hopes and trust in, the one that they had come to love, who taught them so much about God and God's world, had been murdered on a Roman cross. Obviously, everything that he said was ultimately false, not true. And they flee in fear. <laughs> The church knew that dead people stay dead. That's why when the message came from that the tomb was empty and the women first showed up, and then Peter ran to the tomb and saw it for themselves, that's why when they were gathered in the upper room, that's why when Thomas was confronted with the truth, that's why their first reaction was always, I don't believe it sounds like nonsense. See, we think that we are so smart. We're so much smarter than the ancient Christians because we know that dead people stay dead. They knew the same thing. And yet the message of the church is, He was dead, but we saw him again raised to new life. We can't explain it. And in fact, one of the things that none of the Gospels do is explain the resurrection. We first come onto the scene, as it were, when the tomb is empty. We don't understand what happened between Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning. We come upon the scene when the tomb is empty. But one of the things the church insisted was, I know it's strange, I know it sounds like nonsense, but I'm telling you, this is what I saw. And that has been the message of the church down through the centuries. Now, I am not a scientist nor an historian, but the way I understand science, science is about doing things that can have repeatable results. That's how I understand it. Whereas history, by its definition, only happens one time. Everything in history is a unique event. There's never been another day that's today. 
Lincoln only spoke at Gettysburg once. Churchill only stood before Parliament and delivered his great speech once. The atom bomb was only dropped one time. History can't be rerun. And so to say, I know the resurrection couldn't have happened because dead people say dead, is in fact a claim of faith, just as much as the church's claim. You could say, I know that it might seem reasonable, I understand what you're saying about the Bible accounts, but I'm not going to believe it. I know dead people stay dead. I've never seen it in my experience. But if the resurrection did happen, it by definition would be such a unique event in the center of history. It would be unprecedented, of course, that none of our other ways of understanding and seeing things would hold up. If the Son of God was raised on the third day in the power of the Spirit to new life, it ought not to fit into any of our other categories. It ought to seem strange that the one who was dead is now raised to life. We ought to be confused by the details in the scriptures that show him eating fish but then coming and going through locked doors. Because it is a unique event in human history, and that is exactly the church's claim. So don't think the whole phrase, we know dead people stay dead, doesn't work with the message of the church. The church's message is, we know that's the case, and yet we saw him raised anyway. Let me put it another way. The early disciples all fled from the foot of the cross in fear. And yet it is an historical fact that within a few short years, churches were cropping up all over the Mediterranean, and within a few hundred years, the church had overthrown the Roman Empire. What happened? How could some sort of vague spiritual metaphor about the resurrected Christ give those early men and women the boldness they had to preach and proclaim that Christ was risen. How could you go around making a claim like that when everybody else knew the body was still there rotting in the tomb? Listen, I'm not saying that I can prove to you that Christ was raised from the dead. What I'm saying to you is, I think a reasonable thinking person can come to the conclusion that what the church says, as crazy as it sounds, is actually true. And you and I perhaps could come to a place and we say, I hear all that, I'm not going to believe it. That is just as much a claim of faith as the claim of the Apostles' Creed that on the third day he rose again from the dead. In fact, John Polkinghorne, who is a famous physicist and theologian, put it like this. We cannot escape from the insistent problem of how it came about that a man, living in a peripheral province of the Roman Empire, leaving virtually no trace in contemporary secular history, writing no book, dying an ignominious death, nevertheless has been dominant in human life and thought ever since. That's a fact. So the question is, what happened? How do you explain it? I have to tell you that I think the only explanation that's plausible is the explanation of the faith. Is the summary of the Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, died, and was buried, descended to the dead, and the third day rose again from the dead. I think that's the only explanation that makes sense. In fact, it's almost like this. There's a hole in like our map of history. Imagine history as some big tapestry, and right there at the time of the death of Jesus, there's a hole. And we know what happened up to it, and we know what happened since. But right in the middle, there's a space 
There's a piece missing if it's a big puzzle. So the question is, what's that space? This is what I believe. I believe right in the middle, the only space that makes sense is the space of the resurrection. And I'll go further than that. I think right in the middle of our world and right in the middle of you and me, there's a space. And the only thing that can possibly fill it is the good news of the resurrection of the Son of God. Amen. We're going to receive Holy Communion this morning. Holy Communion is one way in which the risen Lord makes his present manifest to us. We can taste and see in the words of the psalm that God is good. And in the broken bread and the wine, we experience in a mysterious way, but still we experience the power and the presence of the risen Lord. And we come to the table with nothing. You may have no belief, no knowledge of the scriptures, no hope for tomorrow. And you come like this with empty hands. And the body and blood are given to you to fill you, to nurture you on the journey of faith. So friends, Christ our Lord invites to his table this morning all who love him and seek to grow into his likeness. You don't have to be a member here to receive. But before you do receive, it is always appropriate that all of us go to the Lord with a time of confession, confessing that we are sinful, broken people. I'd like to invite you to pray now. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have failed to be obedient servants. We've not heard the cry of the needy. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, forgive us and hear these and other confessions to you now.